0: Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles kind of scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, please take that one. Uh, Let it be our gift to you. You can get a daffodil and a Bible today. It's It's a great deal. All right. uh, no, listen, we believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things, but the chief thing He uses it for, the thing above all other things, is to reveal Himself to His people. Uh, let me go ahead and just throw out the unabashed mission of Nashville Baptist Church. We want you to know God. Plain and simple. I can't, I can't make it any simpler than that. We want you to know God. We want everything in, about, and around your life to be shaped by, influenced by, understood through the lens of that knowing Him. And if the Scriptures are what He uses to do that in you, then start reading them. I think he'll use it. Um, So if you don't have a Bible, take that one. I'll call it the best part of my day. Um, Katie won't because she's gonna be like all like doted on today, but like it'll be the best part of my day. All right, so Titus chapter 1. We are a few weeks now into an effort to walk together through uh, the short New Testament book of Titus. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a disciple of his, now contemporary of his, named Titus. It's We just don't name things well. All right, so, and the general theme that Paul sets out in the letter is addressing local church leadership. All right? That's kind of the, the big push behind, behind what's going on. They've got some problems in Crete uh, where Titus is at. Paul and Titus helped to begin a new church on the island of Crete shortly after the end of the book of Acts. And Paul left to go do other stuff, leading, leaving Titus behind to clean up the last little bit of the work before they can say that things were fully done and completed. And the thing that Paul tells them, tells Titus to do, was to, quote, appoint elders in every town, meaning... Raise up a bunch of leaders for the Cretan church from within the Cretan church. That's the game plan. That's what Titus is left there to do. So the obvious next question is, what are elders then? Right? If that's the job of Titus, then probably we ought to know. And so Paul seems to think that the thing that will finally make the Cretan church fully planted, fully begun, and now healthy and operating as it should, is to raise up elders. And so what in the world are elders? And and do we need some? Right? Well, elders is the term that the Bible uses for pastor figures in a local church. We're way more familiar with the term pastor today, but the Bible never uses that as a title. It uses two other terms, elder being the first one, and then another term that we'll actually see here in a minute. But the Bible generally calls these church leaders elders. And it describes them as doing the work of pastoring, verb form. Different. So does that mean that it's wrong then to call some a, someone a pastor? No, I, I don't think so. It's what they do. And, um, and it's the word our culture is definitely most acquainted with, most familiar with. And so there's a contextual argument for keeping that as a, a title. Um, no, like, if I'm ever introducing myself to somebody, whether it's on an airplane or a meet and greet or even at the grocery store, if somebody wants to know what I do for a living, there's one word I can use that'll give them a clue, right? Call myself a pastor. That's how that works. However, during the Protestant Reformation, early 16th century, as the Protestant church was trying to figure out kind of who they are, define themselves in those senses, there was a big movement to get rid of all hierarchical titles as a way of kind of rejecting what they saw as an incredibly corrupt hierarchy in the Catholic church. That a system, a priesthood system that politically minded men usually purchased their way into in order to be elevated in spiritual rank and separated off as someone who has divine right to speak on behalf of God and make decisions for him. And the early reformers saw that as a theological absurdity, and they responded to it, reacted to it. So that 19th century kind of professionalization shift that we talked about last week, that, that was largely a reversal of that Reformation trend. It was a move back to hierarchy. And so in that sense, in that sense, if you're, if you're trying to use the title of pastor as a, as a, you know, or any other religious title for that matter, if you're trying to use it as a way of sectioning off and drawing a separation of class or value or priestly role, then maybe that is out of bounds. Like a lot of things in a mature faith, motive, motive is, ends up being a massively important variable when it comes to figuring out if something is sin or not sin motive matters answering the what exactly am i trying to get out of this question is going to affect every other question that follows so we spent the majority of our time last sunday digging into kind of two main topics surrounding titus's responsibility to raise up elders first we looked at the question of how many right um, is Paul calling Titus to raise up kind of one exemplary gifted man of God to lean from the front? Or is Titus uh, uh, being called to kind of raise up multiple men who share the burden of leadership as a team? And, and while there are loads of Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians and churches on both sides of that question, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that it's the second one. I'm convinced that it's the latter. That Paul would have Titus, and, and by extension every healthy church, that Paul would have them raise up a team of elders to lead. Not only because the New Testament consistently speaks of the office of elder in the plural sense, but also because I think that the list of qualifications for an elder that Paul gives in verses 6-9 through bear out that dynamic. All right? That that that, that leads to the second thing that we talked about last Sunday. Uh, Rather than Paul giving Titus a list of skill sets and aptitudes to look for in finding the the perfect elder for uh, each church, one gifted and credentialed uh, kind of man to stand up on the pedestal, uh, Paul instead goes on and on and on about the potential elder's character before you raise them up. Like, that's all he wants to talk about. When, when given the opportunity to actually give Titus a list of what to look for, Paul doesn't include most of the stuff that you and I think are the most important things for a pastor to do. He just doesn't, it's not on his list. Paul's not looking for some singular five-tool star. He, he tells Titus to go looking for whoever he can find that is, quote, above reproach. And the implication there is that if they meet that qualification, then raise them up. Put them in a a position, empower them to lead, and turn them loose. That's his point. But we shut things down last week. Quarter of the way through verse six, one clause into a four clause sentence. That's a, that's a weird place to shut things down. Uh, we built half a sermon on the idea that all the other things coming after that above reproach piece uh, is the definition and fleshing out of above reproach. And so now it's time to like finish what we started. All right, it's time to, to clean up the mess I, I left. Uh, back up the argument that everything is defining uh, above reproach. And so you ready to look at the text? Good. All right time to reconstruct what we deconstructed last week. Titus 1, starting in verse 5. Paul says, This is why I let you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Let's call time out there. All right, so Paul begins to flesh out this understanding of what it takes to be above reproach. What what are those men who are above reproach actually look like? And what's the first thing on his list? The husband of one wife. Welcome to the first of two major things that just about everybody who reads this has an opinion on. So what does it mean to be the husband of one wife? Well, people have come down historically in a few different positions on this, even today. There's a lot of different places you can land. A, a small minority, a very small minority, have argued that Paul is disqualifying anyone who has never been married. They don't have a wife yet. And the reasoning that the people in that camp give for that argument is that single guys are often pretty immature. Anybody want to argue with that? Looking at the single guy. All right. by the way jack's single anyways all right so now the reason that some i don't i'm not agreeing with them the reason that some people give is that single guys are often pretty immature most of them don't understand yet how to manage a household they don't they don't they don't know how to to lovingly serve a wife or raise up kids and so the by extension the logic goes that if they don't know how to do that stuff how can they care for the church that's the argument and while there's well, proof of being able to manage your household well is 100% in view here, we're going to talk about that kind of a lot today, the never-been-married position is, is, is a minority position for a very, very clear reason. Most notably, spiritual maturity and relationship status are nowhere near the same thing. Right? They're worlds apart. They can have some similarities every once in a while, but we're not, they're not in the same category. We talked in here before when we were walking through 1 Corinthians together that sometimes, sometimes God lovingly calls people to a lifetime of singleness. And that's not some second tier status, some kind of second tier calling in the church for all the people who just couldn't find a spouse That's not what's going on when Paul deals with that in 1 Corinthians. Paul argues that the church would be much healthier if certain individuals in the church actually saw that potential calling as a legitimate, actual, life-fulfilling call on their lives. Something that God had given them for their good and for the good of the church. And so one of the chief arguments against the never-been-married view is that it immediately disqualifies anyone who is actually spiritually mature enough to say yes to God's call on their life. That seems like a bad read. We all in the same boat there? Another view that people often take with the husband and one wife view, a much, much more common view, is to argue that, that Paul is disqualifying anyone who has ever been divorced. While both Jesus and Paul seem to give a few allowances for divorce, they are also both crystal clear, like absolutely clear, that divorce always, and I mean always, involves sin. There is no version of divorce that does not involve sin, that you are are intentionally breaking apart what God has joined together. And I know that the moment that that comes out of my mouth out loud in our culture, it stings a little bit, right? But it's not because the Bible is harsh or restrictive because our culture has an entirely selfish idea of what marriage is. And any attempt to point out that sinful selfishness is going to feel harsh and restrictive. Whenever you start going around poking at people's idols, they tend to fight back. How the world works. Even in the two or three scriptural allowances that we can point to, adultery, abandonment, and abuse, Even those three that we can point to, and let's speak with honesty and integrity this morning, that's not 95% of the divorces that we see in our culture. It's just not. But even in those two or three allowances, they all still include at least one grossly sinful party. I've been doing pastoral ministry long enough to know that there's never such a thing as an innocent party. Even when there is an innocent party. And so many, throughout church history, have seen Paul's command here as setting out a disqualification for someone who has willingly pursued what the Bible clearly calls sin. Are we all? Are we all on board with the idea that that makes sense logically? That the church leaders probably shouldn't be the type of people who have walked willingly into sin. Going to consider that to be important. I think we probably ought to. Um. But while the argument has its merits, I, I think it ultimately falls short for two incredibly massive reasons. The first is that it completely disregards repentance. Um, that's something that we also consider to be important around here. Um, not only do we teach that divorce is sin, unapologetically so, but we also, also teach that Jesus died to pay for that sin, and we, and, like, we teach that... that f- a lifetime of following Jesus, for those who are following him in a in mature faith, that life is marked by a continual repentance before him and a continual trust in his promise of redemption. All of those things are in play here. And so, the pathway for dealing with divorce in the church is not to pretend like it's not an issue. And it's not to try to dance around a little bit, hope nobody ever gets offended. The pathway for dealing with divorce in the church is to call divorce exactly what the Bible calls it and then deal with it exactly the way the Bible calls us to deal with it. Repentance. And if, and I understand that that's a big if, but if that honest and humble repentance is present, then we're all in a healthy place. And so the first major problem with the never-been-divorced argument in verse 6 is, is that it ultimately, kind of immediately, disqualifies faithful men who have truly repented of past sin and are now walking in a depth of humility and spiritual maturity. Seems like a bad group to toss out for nothing more than a preemptory challenge. But there's a second Problem with the never been divorced argument, uh, just like with the never been married view, it blindly equates marital status with spiritual maturity. Um, as if a man simply being married automatically makes him holy before the Lord. We're gonna we're gonna assume that's true. <laughs> See, the problem is not that the view is too stern. The problem with the never divorced view is that it's nowhere near stern enough. No, we're close to stern enough. If we're going to call the first view the, the never-been-married view, and the second view the never-been-divorced view, the third view is probably best called the one-woman man view. The one-woman man view. Uh, the Greek in verse 6 literally reads, gane one woman man. That's all the Greek says. In the version of, the, of Greek that Paul is writing in, you wouldn't draw a distinction in the vocabulary between uh, a man and woman and husband and wife. You would if you wanted to call someone your, wom- your wife, you call them your woman. If you wanted to call someone your husband, you call them your man. That's how it works in the, the, the Greek language that Paul is writing this letter in. And so it's not incorrect at all uh, to render this phrase as the husband of one wife. That's how you would say that in the Greek. We're pretty sure that Paul has the marital relationship in view here. But many argue, and I would include myself in this group. Many argue that rather than pointing to the legal status of marriage, Paul is instead pointing to the right Christian posture of marriage. In other words, a man who has devoted himself to one single woman, one wife. Our world may have changed a lot since Paul's day, but it has not changed. and I mean at all in the regard that there are a lot of men out there who think it's okay to have a wife and some extra options to go along with it. That, that, that part of our world hasn't changed one bit. Not one bit. Uh, whether physical or emotional or digital, whether it's out in the open or it's hidden by uh, some kind of lie and sneaking around, I believe that Paul is outright disqualifying men who, regardless of marital status, are of the unfaithful type. That's what he's aiming at. Potential elders are to be unquestionably one woman men. In word, in action, and an intent. That's only the first half of verse (laughs) 6. We spent all this time talking about the first characteristic. It's also only the first of our two incredibly debated qualifications. The second one is the other item that we just read. What does it say? His children are what? Believers. So what do we do with that? People got some opinions. Again, there's a couple different places that... People have historically kind of landed on this. The most simple and straightforward reading is pretty obvious, that someone cannot be an elder if their children are not Christians. That's what a lot of people have said. And usually, I mean, as a rule here, we tend to try our best to go with the simple, straightforward reading of a text. Served us pretty well in the past. But not only is it the most straightforward reading, additional arguments can be made to make it make sense like like a father who has led his children to the lord that that seems like a generally trustworthy guy to lead others right another argument that's been made historically is the matter of divided attention like meaning if a man's family is still far from god then his time is probably better spent focusing his attention on them than focusing on the needs of leading a church i mean i don't know if you know this church leadership can be stressful. You're stepping up to shoulder a spiritual burden so that others don't have to. It takes more time and attention than a lot of other things in this world. So if your family is in a place where they need your attention more than the church does, maybe there's some wisdom in not serving as a leader right now. So that's kind of the logic of the argument. But in my opinion, there's also a major flaw in the argument. It's this. It does not matter. And I mean at all. It does not matter how much love and attention you give to your children. A father cannot turn their child into a believer. They can spend 100% of their time on trying to win them to Christ. And that time is wisely and dutifully spent. But they have exactly zero power to finish the job. father certainly has a role to play but it's the spirit that gives new life not the dad and so to disqualify men from the office of elder simply because god has not brought regeneration to someone else yet that's a bad read on verse six too the greek word here is the word pistos means faithful means faithful and oftentimes Oftentimes, the word is used by Paul, even in Titus, to mean a saving faith. A saving faith. But sometimes, he doesn't use it that way. Sometimes, he uses it just to simply mean something that is properly ordered. Meaning, their children are generally obedient. Those are two wildly different reads on verse 6, aren't they? Their children are Christians, their children are generally obedient. So how do we decipher between the two of them? What do we do with that? Well, I think we got a couple things we can look at. One, Timothy gets a similar qualification on his list. Paul tells, uh, tells him that elders should, quote, keep their children submissive. That sounds more like the second option, right? The second thing we can look at is what follows the word pistos. What does it say? It says, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So here's a grammatical question that you've got to answer. Is Paul talking about potential elders with that little clause, or is he talking about the potential elders' children? I think he's talking about their kids. I think he's qualifying what he means by pistos. What he means by faithful. And so two questions emerge. If... Paul means faithful. Why does the ESV render pistos as believers then? Like we like this translation around here. Is it, did it get it wrong? Can we trust this to get other things right? Like what do we do? Well, I think it's because it's following its own rule of vocabulary translation. The pistos is most often used by Paul to mean saving faith and so unless you've got an as a general rule in in like translation work you need a very very good reason to diverge from what you have done in the past all right and so because over and over and over again esv renders this word as saving faith as believers you need a clear and like not muddy decision at all to say okay paul means something else by it here and so i think probably what's going on is the esv is actually showing its reliability By translating the word the way it normally translates the word. And then letting the reader do the interpretation instead of doing the interpretation for the reader. That's actually a marker of a good translation. But There's a second question that we can answer. If pistos really means faithful instead of believer, does that mean that someone shouldn't serve as an elder if their children are in a season of debauchery and insubordination? If that's what he means by it, does that mean that that person is disqualified for being an elder? Well, some some have tried to argue that Paul only has non-adult children in view here, and you know kids that are still in the house as opposed to grown adults that are out of the house. In the same way that you cannot make a child a Christian, you cannot make your adult child subordinate either. That doesn't work. I mean, I don't, those of you who have tried, how'd it go? problem with that, though, is that the Greek word for child here does not limit it to minors. It's just the general word for offspring. Paul could have used other words to mean children in the house. That's not the word he used. And so probably... Probably what we're dealing with here is a conscious, sober-minded appeal to wisdom. A conscious, sober-minded appeal to wisdom. Meaning, if you've got the ability right now to influence your child out of rebellion, then go do that. Don't waste your time on church leadership. We We can handle it. Go love your family well. If you, you can't save them, you can't force them, but if you've got a really good reason to believe that freeing up your attention right now from church leadership allows you to focus on them in a productive way, then don't be distracted by church leadership right now. Go, go work on your family. And, and in that case, then no, that, that person shouldn't be serving as an elder right now. It doesn't mean they can't ever. You can't make your kid if you got the ability to pour in, in a way that might actually move the needle, why would we ever tie you down here? Paul is definitely, clearly, speaking of faithfulness in the management of a household here, but it's not a results-based assessment. It's a posture-based assessment, an assessment of posture and ambition, do potential elders model in their family the kind of leadership that's required for leading a church family. That's his point. Look at verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent for greedy gain. All right, so Paul just kind of randomly drops a different term for elders in the list, further proof that these offices are really just one office that has interchangeable terms for it. Uh, So singular office that has multiple names in the New Testament. He calls them overseers. It's the Greek word episkopos, where the Episcopalian church gets their name from. Uh, Sometimes people have translated that word to mean bishops, the Episcopalian Church has a hierarchical system of bishops. That's how they come about having that name. All right, but most people, most people translate the word as overseer, which is what the ESV does here. Someone who watches over everyone else. In other words, a leader. Pretty much the exact same thing as an elder. And Paul clearly uses both of those terms interchangeably here. So, elders are overseers who do the work of pastoring. Got it? Clears mud. Some of y'all got that joke. And that's led many, many to try to explain this dynamic in this way. An elder describes the character of a church leader. An overseer describes what it is they do. And the act of pastoring describes the effect it has on the people of God. Elders oversee a pastored people. That's what we're getting at here. And what's the posture and purpose of this overseeing work? Well, Paul says that they are God's stewards, right? Any authority they have is a delegated authority that will, that will one day be accounted for, right? And so they, they must be what? What does he say? Above reproach. There it is again. Spent a whole week on it last week. Paul just goes after it another time. It's almost like it's important to him. Next, Paul launches into a string of things a potential elder must not be. They must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, he says. Arrogant is probably better rendered as self-willed there, meaning elders must be others facing rather than focus on themselves and what they can get out of the deal. Seems like a good posture for an elder. Quick-tempered is exactly what you think it is. The simple fact is that churches are full of people, and sometimes people are the worst. I don't know if you know that. If you've got a short fuse, church leadership is not your game. You're not going to last very long. Potential elders have to have the character to walk calmly into the chaos and point everyone else back to kingdom values and kingdom goals. If they can't do that, it's going to be chaos all the time. Next, Paul says that they must not be a drunkard. And you think that that one's pretty self-explanatory, but people sometimes have very real questions about where the line is. Um, and I would lovingly argue that if you have to ask, you might be past it. Just the truth. If, I'm not the anti-alcohol guy. I don't think Paul is in any way, shape, or form. I, think he, I don't think he's going there. Um, but like, if you're always wondering about where, how far exactly can you go before it's been too far, you might already be past the line we're worried about. He also says... They must not be violent violent or greedy for gain. Again, don't don't really have to explain that. Like absolutely no one in here is sitting here thinking, you, you know what the church needs more of? Men who are violent. <laughs> Men are just looking to make a buck. Problem though. The problem though is that the church has sometimes historically not cared enough about a crystal clear command to either prevent violent and greedy men from rising up or removing them when they are discovered. The reason why Paul lists this here is not because people really want to find a violent and greedy guy. It's because we don't have the resolve sometimes to get rid of the violent and greedy guy. Like we talked about last week, the justified and Insufficiencies in character by elevating gifting and charisma is more important than that character. And it wasn't long until that lack of character blew up in their face. And doing so actually harmed people. There have been very real stories of pastoral figures being bullies in both word and action. Tragic tales of, of, that have repercussions much longer than just the demise of the church or the ruining of some kind of platform of ministry. People have been harmed. And the unfortunate truth is that the longer you've been in church, the more stories you've probably come across of a church leader who had a pattern of failure in at least one of these things, maybe all of these things. And Paul's instructions to Titus here, his instructions are to flesh out those insufficiencies before you raise them up. Don't, Don't wait until you see something later. Figure them out now. Measure them now. And if they're not there, you're not, you're not hitting the launch button on this. If you're waiting until after. It's going to go bad. So are the qualifications for leadership just kind of limited to avoiding the negative stuff? Not at all. Paul moves next into the positives in verse 8. Look at it. But hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and What? Discipline. So Paul shifts his tone with a single word here, but. He moves from things a potential elder must not be to things that they absolutely must be. And each of the things uh, that he mentions here, coming after it, they all stand in stark contrast to any kind of self-serving posture. All right? That's kind of what's going on. He says that they should be hospitable. We talked about hospitality in here at other times, right? Like Biblical hospitality is not a desire and ability to throw a slamming dinner party. Maybe that's the thing you're passionate about, gifted about. That's not what the Bible has in view when it's talking about hospitality. Biblical hospitality is a posture of open-handedness. A posture of open-handedness. Paul's not talking about the need to always have people in your home, though that's a good thing. He's not saying that elders should always be looking for the best new recipe or making sure that the place setting is Instagram worthy. Those things aren't bad, but that's not what the Bible is talking about. No, hospitality is a consistent posture of throwing open the cupboards and saying, hey, whatever I got, you can have. Oh, you're hungry? Oh, you need this? Oh, you need that? Great news. God has blessed me beyond what I need. Enjoy. He's given me enough to spare. Now, why would it be important for in the life and character of an elder to, to see hospitality? Why would that be important? It's not, it's not because it's the elder's job to make sure everybody else's physical needs are met. This is not an issue of dependency. It is a matter of teaching. It's a matter of teaching. Uh, God himself is radically hospitable. He is the one who has graciously thrown open the cupboards and said, what is mine is yours and joy. And because that's who he is, all Christians, and I mean every single one of us, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, all Christians are called to the exact same posture. We're all to be hospitable. It is each and every one of our callings as God's people to model incredible hospitality to others because that's who we have been saved by and that's who we're being created into. But as with all things in godliness and all things in the church, elders lead and teach by both word and example. By both word and example. We don't just talk it, we show it. The reason why potential elders must, must be hospitable is because they show everyone else how to walk as we have all been called to walk. They're to model Christlikeness for everyone. Which leads right into what Paul says next. Potential elders are also to be lovers of good. In other words, that which is pleasing to God must be be pursued and celebrated in the life and character of the church's elders. And again, I, I, don't, I don't think anybody goes, yeah, nah, we, we don't need any of that. Like, nobody would want anything less than that. The problem, though, is that there are lots of examples in both church history and, and even in the church today, where something was boldly declared by a supposed leader as being good and pleasing to the Lord when it was actually the exact opposite of what God has clearly and repeatedly said was pleasing to him. Um, moments where some church leader, quote unquote, stood up and called evil good and good evil. Happened all over the Old Testament, Happens still today. And so how in the world do we recognize the nonsense, we navigate through the mess? And so how do we recognize moments like that before? as they're emerging, or maybe even before they emerge? Well, I think the answer is that we all have to keep our our nose in God's Word. Not just leaders, all of us. This is an everybody thing. It's how you keep leaders accountable. You know the Bible as well as them. Throughout church history, it's usually been the moments of greatest biblical illiteracy that has seen church leaders with an agenda rise up and make a mess of things. People didn't know any better. Somebody who sounded like they had authority, sounded like they had understanding, said, thus says the Lord, and it all went south fast. Even today, you can go home and watch some TBN this afternoon. It it won't take long before you'll come across some kind of teacher saying something completely contrary to the Bible. And then, like a stroke of magic, they'll cut away to an audience shot where everybody's got an open Bible in their lap and a smile on their face, just nodding along with a grin. Yep, that's what it says. That's not what it said. Problems problem is they don't know. problem is they don't actually know. As someone who's devoted their life to being a teacher of the Bible, those are the moments that give me the biggest knots in my stomach. Those are the moments where Katie usually makes me turn the channel before I get angry and start throwing stuff at the TV. But what's the fix for that? How, how do we solve that problem? It's not make sure Stephen gets a better platform so I'm louder than the other guy. Everybody pay attention to me instead of that other guy. The fix for it is that we all put in the work to know our Bibles well so that we recognize the stench of false teaching the moment it comes out of someone's mouth. That's how we fix that. Potential elders must love what is actually good. Not what they declare to be good, what is actually good, which means that you need to know what is actually good. Without that, you can never hold leaders accountable. You can never hold me accountable. You need to know what is good, what is pleasing to God, both yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Here's a clue. He doesn't change. But Paul says that they must also be self-controlled. See a certain Fruit of the Spirit series that we talked about a few weeks ago. I won't flesh that out. They must also be upright and holy, he says. Paul's talking about a righteousness of lifestyle here, right? Upright and holy. Potential elders must stand out from the crowd as being the righteous one. Again, why? Because their lives are on display. Their lives are not merely just hoping they, they follow their own teaching. It's not a, a check them for hypocrisy thing. It's a are they teaching by their lifestyle thing. They teach by their very manner of life that right, that right understanding of the gospel produces a right living of the gospel. We've we've said it since week one. Knowledge of the truth organically produces godliness. You need to see that in potential elders. And then finally, Paul says that potential elders must be disciplined. Along the same lines as self-control there for Paul. Discipline is a mastery over your life instead of your life having a mastery over you. In another letter that Paul wrote, Paul likens discipline to uh, an athlete training for the Ismian Games, right? like an Olympic athlete, meaning they're not lazy. Olympic athletes aren't lazy. Uh, Elders are paying attention and they're putting in the work because the prize is infinitely worth the work. It's infinitely worth chasing after with diligence. The sacrifice is totally worth it, so you pour in. So here's the question. Here's a question that I I really, really feel needs to be asked out loud this morning. What's on this list so far that normal people can't do? we will say it again. We've got to answer the question. What's on the list so far? Is there anything that Paul has mentioned yet that's only approachable by the super-Christian? The answer is nothing. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. Every single thing we talked about so far is literally just the fleshing out of spiritual maturity. That's all it is. If we remove this from the context of elders this morning, we just applied it to a, a you know kind of a general conversation about what God expects from all the grown-up Christians in the room right now. Like it would make immediate sense to all of us. All of us would be going, "Yep, yep, that sounds about right." Walk down the list again in your head real fast. It's pretty, pretty standard stuff. Nobody would be going, how dare God expect so much from his people? What is he thinking? Now, we we would all confess our inability to live up to this perfectly and consistently, but then we would also point to the gospel, right? We talk about how Jesus' perfect character in our place made payment for our sin by His perfect life and His perfect death and then His resurrection. And then we would humble ourselves before the Spirit and beg Him to continue sanctifying us so we can all keep maturing, right? That's the game plan we would run. All we've talked about so far is the character of someone who who has grown and is growing in spiritual maturity. That's it. This goes back to our time last week, right? Most people's understanding of what it takes to be an elder comes from, it doesn't come from any conviction over a specific text in the Bible or any relevant text in the Bible. It comes from a faulty belief that God has two kinds of people in the local church, regular Christians and the professional ones. Regular Christians and super Christians. you got the normal folk and then you got the leaders who do it right. The ones that carry special anointing and gifts that you know those mere mortals over there could only ever daydream about. But 16 items into Paul's 18-item list, all we've covered so far is basic spiritual maturity. That's it. Basic spiritual maturity. A life witness that actually matches the mouth witness. It's that whole above reproach thing. Does that mean? That local church leadership is mostly just you know, dependent upon God's people acting like grown-up Christians? Yeah, that's pretty much exactly what that means. That's all it, all it really is. So is there anything at all then that's necessary to set elders apart from other mature Christians in the church? Yeah. We get to it finally in verse 9. There's one more character piece that fleshes itself out in a specific skill set. Look at verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So Paul says that potential elders hold firm to what is taught. They've been instructed in the gospel. They trust that they are students of the word. They bank their life on it and they know exactly where they stand. That's his point. Now, that doesn't mean that they've got got every answer to every question that pops up. It doesn't mean that they don't continue to to grow and learn and maybe even shift their view on a doctrinal matter over time. What it does mean, though, is that they have put in the work to come to understanding about the things that are important to understand. They're not waffling around on this. They're serious about this. Well, you know, I just don't know. No, they've decided where they land on these things. They're resolved. They're humble and teachable, but they're resolved. And with that resolve over the important stuff in place, Paul says, so that, so that, there's a God-given purpose to their resolve over what is taught, and that's the one skill set on the list. What is it? So they may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. The qualifications that Paul gives to Timothy in his letter says it a little more succinctly. Able to teach. That's so all he says to Timothy. Able to teach. So what, is all, what, is, what all does all this teaching include? Right? Well, instruction and rebuke, apparently. Bringing people to a right understanding of the truth of the gospel and correcting wrong understanding, whether intentional or unintentional, whether confrontational or unconfrontational. Imparting good knowledge, correcting bad knowledge. Over and over again, the merry-go-round goes around. Okay, where where does that teaching occur? Well, I would argue whenever and wherever it is necessary to serve the church. All over the place. It might include leading a class. It definitely would certainly include one-on-one conversations, and it probably includes preaching. I would say it definitely includes preaching. Does that that mean then that every elder needs to have a kind of charismatic stage presence? No. No. Does it it mean that some aren't more disposed to teaching a small group class than being the guy on the stage? Not a bit. Paul doesn't say that they need to have the spiritual gift of teaching. He says that they must be able to teach. Those aren't exactly the same thing. They can inform each other, but they're not exactly the same thing. They must be able to stand up and lead others in understanding what the Bible says about a specific situation. Are they allowed to be super nervous while they're doing it? Absolutely they are. Are they allowed to kind of stutter through it and, and, and kind of be less charismatic than somebody else in the room who might be doing it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The point, the point is not to find a bunch of guys who can hold down recognized teaching platforms, ministry platforms. The point is to find a bunch of guys who love the church and are willing to put in the work of helping everyone else around them grow in understanding of the gospel. That's the point. And by God's grace, man, by God's grace, he also loads some of those guys with a little more charisma and gifting. And they shoulder more of the public teaching burden. Not every elder is called to teach on a weekly basis. God does indeed give some special gifts to individuals within a local church to serve and bless the church. But what is necessary of every elder is that they are men of lofty character and conviction who own the responsibility of making sure everyone else is growing. That's what elders do. They are men who make sure that good doctrine is being learned and bad doctrine is being refuted. And I'll go ahead and say it out loud. I'll take a bunch of those guys more than the charismatic guy any day. Every day, actually. Why? Because one of those options leads to gathering attention and the other option leads to a healthy church. It's not hard in our world to gather attention. You can do it with all kinds of things. You can do it with a rock concert. You can do it with a train wreck. But God will use healthy churches to actually fundamentally change a community. I want more of those. I think our world needs, desperately needs more of those. So wh- what do we do with this stuff, right? Like, How can we respond to God's word this morning? What If you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus, our our response is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, I think he's showing us that his great ambition for the local church is way simpler than we often make it out to be. At least the parts that we tend to think are too complicated. So our response this week probably needs to take the shape of repenting for outrunning the coverage he's actually called us to. And then right on the heels of that, asking honest questions about how our expectations and structures can shift to be more aligned with God's good design. When it comes to who we place in positions of leadership here, are, are we making assessments based on something other than what we're seeing laid out in simplicity in Titus 1? Are we adding things to the list that Paul didn't want on there? I'm going to pray and We're going to sing. That's a time that we carve out to put some action to whatever God is stirring in your heart. We want to give you space for that. What if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? You can respond to God's word today, too, and you do that by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that all people are separated relationally from God because of our sin, that we are owed the good and righteous punishment for that sin, God's wrath. The Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love, that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God makes us alive through Christ by his grace. Jesus put on flesh, he dwelt among us, he lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living, and he died on the cross as a perfectly innocent substitute in your place to make full and final payment for your sin. He was also raised again from the dead as a perfect and sufficient vindication for his own righteousness. The check has cleared. Everything that was needed to accomplish has been accomplished. But as the one who stands victoriously over Satan's sin and death, he calls on you in this very moment to respond to him in repentance and faith. Will you be his? If you're ready to say yes to that, man, I'd love to walk you through that. You repent of your sin, you call out to him as Savior and Lord, and the Bible promises that he will save you. That he is saving you. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. If you want somebody to talk to, I'll be down front there. But whoever you are and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the letter of Titus. Lofty but simple. Only approachable by your grace and your goodness to us. But also, you don't require anything more than that. We need you to work in us, whether as normal believers or as leaders here, we need you to work in us to ever come close to spiritual maturity. But oftentimes, we make it more complicated even than that. <coughs> Fathers, we sing, and we Respond, would you shape our hearts and shape our church into what you want us to be? Help us, I don't know, maybe clean some things up here. Father, for those who here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to know you? Would you call men and women into your kingdom this morning by your grace? Would you celebrate your goodness? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.